Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? In 2020, Reuters released an in-depth investigative report about the state of the judicial system in America. The findings were harrowing. According to the report, thousands of state and local judges across the nation had frequent documented instances of violating judicial ethics and breaking the law in their capacity on the bench. In many of these cases, the judges in question retained their position of authority. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? In one story, Judge Les Hayes of Alabama once sentenced a single mother to 496 days of jail time for failing to pay her traffic tickets. This sentence was longer than the state's own maximum penalty for negligent homicide. The woman in question said that Hayes, quote, took away my life and didn't care how my children suffered. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Reuters reports that judges, quote, have made racist statements, lied to state officials, and forced defendants to languish in jail without a lawyer, and then return to the bench, sometimes with little more than a rebuke from the state agencies overseeing their conduct. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham's question to God seems to be a live one if the human judges we depend on seem to be any indication of what justice is. We have seen in our own time the precarious state of justice in the legal system, how brittle the gavel is that delivers true equity and right judgment. Our nation is in the midst of an ongoing crisis of justice deprivation, proving that a system's complexity is no guarantee of its effectiveness. And we are not unique in this. Indeed, the story of Scripture is told as one long attempt at obtaining justice and being thwarted at every turn by the ambitions of the powerful and the pervasiveness of sin. So we ask with Abraham again and again, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Jesus claims to be the just judge of all the earth. This section we are looking at is part of a longer discourse that uses a lot of judicial language. The Jewish leaders are accusing Jesus of being a lawbreaker and a blasphemer, claiming equality with God, two very serious charges. Jesus addresses this first accusation of lawbreaking by leaning into the second accusation and turning the tables on his opponents, putting them on trial. At issue in our text is Jesus' relationship to the law on one hand and his ability to enact justice on the other. If Jesus is indeed the one who holds the authority to judge as he says he does, that leads us to ask some questions. Who gave him this authority? How does he wield this authority? And why should we expect anything different from Jesus than we do from other human judges? This text begins to develop answers to these questions. And so in order to kind of begin putting together these answers, we see three things in this text. One, we see that Jesus' status as judge depends on the person of the Son. Second, that it depends on the power of the Son. And these two things prove the prerogative of the Son to judge. The person of the Son, the power of the Son, and the prerogative of the Son. So let's dig in, starting at verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, healing, 
the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Slim preached last week on Jesus' healing of the paralyzed man. Here, we pick up on this conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, because Christ's healing work occurred on the Sabbath. And the issue here is the legality of what Jesus is doing. Rest from work on the Sabbath was a revered law in Jewish tradition. In fact, it was rooted in the Ten Commandments themselves. In Exodus 20, God gave clear instructions for the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Keeping Sabbath was one very important way that Jews were to distinguish themselves from other people groups and show their allegiance to God alone. Sabbath was rooted in the creation account of Genesis. And so from the perspective of the Jewish leaders, Jesus is flouting a very clear command of God, and they confront him over it. Now, what's interesting at this point is that Jesus sidesteps that debate completely. Jesus doesn't engage in a series of back and forths about what is and is not labor on the Sabbath. He doesn't appeal to certain rabbis. He doesn't make arguments, but rather he uses this command in Exodus to jump off and say something really profound about his identity. Jesus goes back to Genesis 1. Here's what Genesis says about God's rest. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Now, if you read Genesis 1, it's written with a very clear pattern. God speaks something into existence, then God calls it very good, and then there is this refrain, there was evening and there was morning, the first day or the second day or the third day, evening and morning. But this refrain is strangely absent from the seventh day. There is no evening and morning in the seventh day. It never ends. Why might this be? Well, Matilda Fry explains it this way. She says, set apart from all other days, the blessing of the seventh day establishes the seventh part of created time as a day when God grants his presence in the created world. It is then that this presence provides the blessing and the sanctification. The seventh day is blessed and established as the part of time that assures fruitfulness, future orientation, continuity, and permanence for every aspect of life within the dimension of time, this dimension that God has created. The seventh day is blessed by God's presence for the sake of the created world, for all nature, and for all living beings. So, put another way, although God rests from creating on the seventh day, that rest from creating also institutes an ongoing period where God is doing another kind of work, sustaining, giving life, and after sin, restoring, redeeming, reordering. This is the work that God is continually doing. And this is the work that Jesus identifies as his own work in John. This work of restoring, redeeming, reordering. The Sabbath was given by God as a reflection of God's character. It was given to sustain and preserve life. It is a preservative measure. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing by healing. So when the Jewish leaders confront Jesus and asks, what gives you the right to do this on the Sabbath? Jesus says, well, like father, like son, I guess. And for this reason, in in verse 18, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, bad, But he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Really bad. The leaders 
immediately recognize what Jesus is doing here, right? They're, when Jesus says this, they don't kind of, you know, go back to their huddle and talk it out. They immediately accuse him of claiming equality with God, and they seek to persecute him. What does Jesus say in response? He says this, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself, and he can do only what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. So if Jesus is claiming equality with God, why this distinction between Father and Son? If the, if the Jewish leaders are right that Jesus is in fact claiming equality with God, why not clear up the matter right now and just say, I am God? Some conservative scholars have suggested that the reason Jesus introduces this language of fatherhood and sonship is so that the Jews will not misunderstand him. They argue that he is in fact not claiming equality with God the Father. And in fact, it seems like this, this tension that we all kind of deal with, right? There's, there's always this, this um, impulse we have to downplay the equality of the Father and the Son. Because if we confess one God, then the existence of two divine persons, not to say three divine persons, seems a little problematic. In one of the earliest controversies in Christianity, followers of Arius, this, this teacher in early Christianity, were willing to attribute divinity to Jesus, but it was a derived divinity. It was divinity that was given to Jesus by God the Father as sort of an inheritance. It's an inherited divinity. So Jesus is very similar to God the Father, according to Arius. In fact, as close as you can possibly get, God the Father is here, and Jesus is kind of like right here. But Jesus wasn't the same stuff as God the Father. And Arian uh, supporters, in fact, used this very passage as evidence to, to show that Jesus was beneath the Father, because Jesus can only do what he sees the Father doing. So Jesus is sort of like an eternal vice president to God the Father. And l let me just pause here for a minute and say, it's really hard to preach about the Trinity, it's so hard, in fact, to talk about the Trinity that in most Christian art, whenever artists are trying to depict the Trinity or think about the Trinity, they kind of resort to these like holy diagrams, right? So you have all of these arrows pointing in different ways and they're not pointing in some directions and they are pointing in other directions because nobody can really like grasp it. And so we're just forced to try to sort of chart it out. Evangelicals in particular are famous in some circles for our heretical analogies for the Trinity, uh, there's a lot of them, you know, the water, ice, vapor thing where they're all H2O, but they're in different forms. Uh, the man who is a father, a son, and a brother. Uh, God is like a three-leaf clover. We have a lot of them, and none of them work, and they're all heretical. Uh, yeah, so uh, this morning, in honor of this text, I'd like to introduce us to one more heretical analogy that, that I have invented, um, which I'm going to call the Swayzean heresy. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Ghost... There's this famous scene where the ghost of Patrick Swayze kind of romantically is haunting Demi Moore. And so while she's in a pottery class, he's doing the pottery and they kind of do this pot together. Do we have a picture of that? Yeah, yeah. So just to be clear, Patrick Swayze is God the Father uh, and Demi Moore is uh, God the Son, right? So 
you, when you read this passage, you can be kind of tempted to think about the relationship in this way, right? That Jesus' ministry is, is Jesus doing this thing, but God has his hands on Jesus' hands and is kind of, you know, acting upon Jesus, or that Jesus is doing things with the Father, kind of moving him around like a, a divine marionette or something like that. Um, but, but that's not how the earliest Christians saw this passage, and that's not how they saw Jesus' relationship with the Father. In fact, to understand this father-son dynamic, we got to go back to what John says. John sets the terms for this father-son relationship in, the, in chapter 1. He introduces this mystery of distinction on the one hand and perfect unity and oneness on the other. If we look at John 1.1, this is a very well-known passage. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. With God, distinction, was God, unity and oneness. So in John 1, we see the Son doing the works of the Father. So after John sets the terms, right, the Word was with God and the Word was God, he says, through him all things were made. That's the Word. Through the Word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. This divine creative action, this making of all things, this cosmos building program is God the Father creating through God the Son, the Word. This is taking place at the very beginning of time. And so contrary to the Swayzean heresy that I've introduced, here's how St. Augustine, one of the foremost fathers, an African bishop in the early church, explained the triunity of God in the context of the Son. In context of the Son's incarnation specifically. So Jesus coming to earth. This is what Augustine says of this passage. The son cannot do anything of himself except what he sees the father doing. That's the passage from John. And this is what Augustine says. Consequently, John should go on to say, for whatever the father does, the son does the same sort of things. He didn't say this, but whatever the father does, these same things the son also does. The father doesn't do some things, the son other things, because everything the father does, he does through the son. The son raised up Lazarus. Does this mean that the father did not raise him up? The son gave sight to the blind man. Does that mean the father does not give him sight? The father gave him sight and light through the son in the Holy Spirit. <coughs> he says, he goes on to say, they are three, father, son, and Holy Spirit. But there is one activity, one majesty, one eternity, one co-eternity, and one and the same work of the Trinity. See what Augustine is saying there? That Jesus the Son, who becomes human for us and for our salvation, is doing one and the same work, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so Jesus is fully God and remains fully in relationship with the Father, who is also God. These statements, I'm thinking about it again, and I'm, it's kind of like making my brain explode. But there's something we can ground ourselves in. We're kind of free-floating in this language of God is this, but is not that. The Son is this, but not that. But there is something we can ground ourselves in 
as we are immerse ourselves in this mystery, because it will forever remain a mystery. Can we just be clear about that? The Trinity and God's being, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, are mystery, not because we can't say anything about them, but because we could say things about them for the rest of our lives and on into eternity, and we would never quite grasp it, right? We could talk about the Trinity forever, and it would still remain beyond our grasp. It would be, remain beyond our reason. But here's the anchor I want to give you in the midst of this, okay? Here's the anchor. It's a question. What is at the heart of this father-son relationship? If God the Father is God and God the Son is God, what's, this, what, what's holding this together? What's, what's at the heart of this father-son relationship? Is it a pure expression of cosmic authority? Is it power? Is it a cold, inanimate force of power? No. Jesus says this. This is what he says. The Father is with the Son, not because he is all-powerful, not because he is all-knowing, not because he is uh, eternal, but because the Father loves the Son. This, friends, is our anchor in the mystery. For God to be God is for God to love. In fact, in the letter of 1 John, John states it explicitly, God is love. Not God has love for you or God loves, but God is love. Father, Son, and Spirit in an eternal bond of mutual affection and care. So why is the Son the Son? Because he is loved by the Father. Why is the Father the Father? Because he loves the Son. This should encourage us Friends, I know it still seems out there, but let me see if I can bring it down a little bit further. This should encourage us because the works of Jesus, the healing of the paralyzed man, the curing of the sick, the turning of water to wine, these miracles are first and foremost expressions of the Father's love for the Son. Look at Jesus' words again. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. The work of Jesus is an outpouring of the Father's love for him. And this is good news because it means that God's will to create, God's will to speak out of the nothingness and build this beautiful cosmos, God's will to create human beings, God's will to love human beings, God's will to send the Son is an overflow of God's love for God's self. It means that when Jesus says God so loved the world that he sent the son, that the love for the world is the same eternal love that the father has for the son. And that love is just spilling over onto the canvas of salvation in vibrant color. It means God's love for you and God's love for me does not depend on our performance, our worthiness, our persistence, because God's love for us is not rooted in us. It's rooted in God's desire to share himself as he does between father and son. This is who Jesus is, friends, and this is the work that he does. We spent a lot of time talking about the person of the son because that's important. You don't get the power unless you understand the person. And so when we look at the person of the son, we see also that he has power. Look at verse 20 says, yes, he will show him that the Father will show the Son even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. The person of the Son gives us an understanding of the power of the Son. And the power of the Son is captured in three aspects here. The power to have life in himself, the power to raise the dead, 
and the power to give eternal life to whomever he pleases. And those two last two points will be kind of in the, the following section as well. So let's leave aside this verse about uh, judgment that comes in 23. Let's talk about the works. What are these greater works he's talking about? The first section of John's gospel is referred to as the book of signs. There are seven major signs in John's gospel, and up to this point, we've seen three. The water to wine, the healing of the official son, and now the healing of the paralyzed man um, on the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, um, well, I'm going to do even greater things than this, and you will be amazed. But up to this point, the Jewish leaders are not amazed at all. They are offended because, not because it wasn't incredible, right? He healed a paralyzed man. He brought someone back to life. He is doing incredible things. That's not impressive to them because their major concern is it's on the Sabbath. You know the rules. No healing on the Sabbath. They're offended. Concern for the letter of the law had made them cold to the spirit of the law. Concern for the letter of the law had made them cold to the spirit of the law. The law itself was a healing measure given by God to preserve life and sustain the worship of God. In the famous novel by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, I think I'm saying that right, Les Miserables, uh, Les Miserables, uh, the main character, Jean Valjean, is imprisoned for 19 years. Not because he killed someone, but because he stole bread to save his starving family. Upon his release, 19 years later, he is angry and bitter at the world for being so unfeeling to his family's need for survival. And that bitterness spills over into his feeling towards God. If God's justice is this way, Valjean reasons, then I want nothing to do with God. The story follows Valjean's redemption, which is spurred by kindness from a priest. When Valjean encounters a monastery, he goes in and receives a warm meal, and then at night he steals silver from the monastery and is arrested down the road. When he's brought back to the priest, the priest tells the police that actually the silver was a gift, and he allows Valjean to take it on the condition that he recognize God's goodness and that he use this money to do good. The priest shows Valjean the heart of God's law. The law is given to preserve life. Sometimes to fulfill the law of love, we have to set aside procedural concerns. I think we understand this instinctively on some level. If you think about some of the big stories from the Old Testament, you can think of uh, Rahab hiding the spies, right? And when the king of Jericho comes to inquire as to whether she has seen any suspicious um, Israelites lurking around, she says, nope, never seen them, right? She lies, procedural misconduct to save a life, right? She knows the spirit of God's law. She understands the reason that God has given commands. It's to preserve and save life. You can think about the midwives in the Exodus story who, when Pharaoh orders them to kill all the firstborn when, they're, when they come out of their mothers, right, they go, yeah, the Hebrew women are just too vigorous and they have their babies before we can get to them. So, oh well, right? They lie in order to preserve this life. So 
what's the point of this? Jesus' healing on the Sabbath fulfills the spirit of the law to preserve life. And friends, when we see God's commands primarily as punitive, meant to inflict punishment, rather than as preservative, meant to sustain life, we fall into the same trap that these leaders fell into. That we are meant, as God's representatives, to weigh every infraction, to keep record of wrongs, and to dole out judgment. But Jesus reads the law perfectly as a means of healing what is broken and acts in accordance with the heart of God and in the power of God. So Jesus' authority, his power as lawgiver, is rooted in his identity as life giver. Life, life, life is the prevailing concern of the law about the Sabbath, as it is with all the law. And giving life is both the purpose and the power of Jesus' ministry on earth. John prof- uh, in, uh, Jesus prophesies in John 10 that he has the power to lay his life down and to take it up again. This is very clearly something that the Jewish leaders would have recognized as something only God can do. Deuteronomy 32, God says, There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. Genesis 2 says that Adam did not become a living being until God bestowed his own breath into the nostrils of the man. God has life in himself, nobody else. Everything else is contingent. God alone is essential, which is why it's so scandalous that Jesus says the son has been given power to have life in himself. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. He continues, very truly, I say, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of God, the voice of the son of God, and those who hear will live. So Jesus is pressing here, talking about resurrection. He says, I have life in myself. I can give eternal life and I will raise from the dead. He's talking about resurrection, which is not the same thing as revivification. Let me explain the difference to you. What happened to Lazarus was revivification, bringing back to life. But it was the same kind of life that Lazarus had before, right? With the same job, the same problems, the same outcome, death, he died again. Revivification is paddles on the chest. Resurrection, on the other hand, is different. It's putting muscle and sinew back onto old dusty bones. It's the filling of decayed lungs with new air. It's new creation. Resurrection is this promise from Jesus that anyone who hears Jesus' life-giving word and believes has a different kind of life with a different outcome. Notice, too, that for Jesus, eternal life and bodily resurrection are mutually linked. Eternal life in verse 24 is linked to the resurrection of the dead in 25. Eternal life for Jesus is not about escaping this world, not about some ethereal existence as a wispy spirit floating in space. No, it's about the renewal of these bodies, the enlivening of our very selves, but without the weight of sin and the threat of evil. Here's the long and short of it. The resurrection of Lazarus was a qualitative differently it was a qualitatively different thing than the resurrection of Jesus. 
They were categorically different because Lazarus rose only to die again later, but Jesus rose to live forever and ever, clothed in glory, seated with the Father in power. And it's this, not the Lazarus resurrection, but the Jesus-style resurrection that we are promised. Jesus' resurrection is the promise and the down payment. It's the first taste of what we will all experience for those who believe. But in order for this new kind of life to begin, in order for the power of the Son to work for our good, there has to be a judgment first. So let's look at the prerogative of the Son. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then in verse 30, he says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So the person of the Son, divine, with the Father from the beginning, working with the Father in unity as one work, and the power of the Son to bring to life, prove the prerogative of the Son, the prerogative of the Son to judge. We see this progression. If Jesus is the incarnate word, he has the authority to heal on the Sabbath, which is meant to preserve life. And if he has the authority to raise the dead to life, then by the same authority, he can pronounce judgment. Here, with resurrection and judgment, we see the two things we have discussed hand in hand. God's loving initiative as life giver and God's justice flowing out of his concern for that life he has given. The two cannot be untangled. And this teaching is meant to elicit questions in our hearts. Rather than give us a play-by-play of who's in and who's out at the last judgment, Jesus forces us to make a decision. As we hear his word, will we trust him? That's what he asks of us. Will we trust him and the one who sent him? So Jesus promises this resurrection, and he also promises a judgment. And what will this judgment be? Look at verse 28. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. This is good news for a couple of reasons. First, this is good news, because at the end of the day, our world cries out for evil to be condemned. It is the lament of creation from the moment Cain spilled Abel's blood up until this very moment. Second, it is good news because it solidifies our hope That true justice has its purpose in giving life. It's good news for the world. God's justice is invested in giving life. But it's only good news for you if you hear Jesus' words and believe the Father who sent him. Because here's the reality. Evil is not just something out there somewhere floating in our midst. It's not something that acts upon us, but it's among us. It is in us. Evil is the poison that is killing us and causing us to kill one another. And so if you are in Christ, here's what happens. God gives you life precisely by condemning your sin on the cross. The cross is this unique moment in time when the judge simultaneously takes the bench and the stand. He condemns the sin of humanity by dying as one of us, bearing our sin for us, and precisely in that moment, he gives gives new life to us. 
releasing us of our debt. Jesus the judge is Jesus the life giver. He is in the business of judging because he is in the business of saving life. We know from the scriptures that in the cross, these two aspects of Jesus' identity come together in the ultimate way. Paul says as much in Colossians 2. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, Christ, God made you alive with Christ, the life giver. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Life-giving judgment. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So, one final point. We've seen that Jesus is God with the Father from eternity past. But it's important to recognize that the reason that Jesus has been entrusted with judgment is, or sorry, the, the, the justification for Jesus' being judge, being given authority to judge. Look at verse 27. He has given him authority to judge because, not because he is eternal word, not because he is God from all times past, but because he is the son of man. Jesus introduces this title, Son of Man, for the first time here. And it's a title meant to evoke all kinds of memory for his Jewish hearers. The scribes and the teachers would have been transported immediately to Daniel 7. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. Daniel is the key to understanding the unique prerogative of Jesus as judge. Why does the Father not judge? Well, according to Daniel, in the last days, the Ancient of Days entrusts judgment to a son of man. According to Christ, he is this eschatological figure, the son of man, the divine judge in the form of a human being. Christ is judge of all peoples because Christ alone came to all peoples as a human being. Our judge is not aloof, separated from us. He's not a judge who is unfamiliar with the plight of the poor, the outcast, the wrongly accused. He is not a judge who has never experienced the pain and the joy of the human condition. He is given dominion and authority precisely as the Son of Man. Why should this be cause for celebration, though? Why should we celebrate the coming of the Son of Man rather than the Father. We're all familiar with the the finitude, the sinfulness, the failure of human judges. Whether personally or from a distance, we have watched as the cause of justice languished in the sea of bureaucracy, partisanship, and honestly just plain ineptitude. Just a few days ago, the state of Oklahoma waited in agony as the governor held judgment on a stay of execution for Julius Jones. In the face of growing evidence of a botched case, as well as the advice from state boards, multiple times, I might add, to make Jones eligible for parole, it was only surmounting public and political pressure that finally caused the governor to commute his sentence at the last minute. So why should we celebrate that the one who judges us is a human? 
Sometimes it feels like pulling teeth to get human authorities to do the obvious and painless right thing. So why should we rejoice at the prospect of yet one more human authority, one more judge from among us, one more son of man? Jesus makes clear why. He says, my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Unlike other human authorities, Jesus is not beholden to the pressures of pundits, politicians, or parties. Jesus is never running for re-election. He has no constituency. Jesus is the just judge because his only pleasure is to act in unity with the Father who knows and sees all. That's all he cares about. The Trinitarian love that empowers Jesus to do miracles also assures Jesus' ability to judge with perfect integrity. Jesus is the one human judge we can depend on. He's the only human authority we can rely on, and he's the one who will hear our plea and judge in righteousness because the human son of man is also the everlasting son of God. Let's pray together.